Where would you say that we are? Well, it looks like King's Cross Station. Only cleaner. And without all the trains. King's Cross, is that right? This is, as they say, your party. King's Cross Station in London is known for Harry Potter and Platform 9 and 3 quarters throughout the world. But it is also the home of one of the largest and most successful regeneration projects in Europe this century. The area around King's Cross and St Pancras stations was renowned until very recently for drugs, prostitution and crime. But it has been transformed over the last 20 years with a new look station, new homes new public squares, shops, restaurants, bars and offices for some of the biggest businesses in the world, including Google. As the UK struggles to get other regeneration projects off the ground around the country, it feels more important than ever to ask, how did this happen? I'm Graham Ruddick and you're listening to Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at big stories from the past and asks... What can we learn from them today? In this episode, we speak to Roger Madeline, who as boss of developer Argent, led the regeneration of King's Cross, and who is now working on another big regeneration project at Canada Water in East London for the developer British Land. It is there where he told me that he initially wanted to be a pilot. Well, I think uh, if you're interested in aviation you are generally interested in science mm-hmm. engineering you know how do airplanes stay up in the air and you know how do they move forward i spent three years flying gliders before power planes and then i was a gliding instructor for 15 years and i also flew hang gliders for 10 years and using the the power of the environment to keep you in the air certainly increase my interest in using the environment in ways that, that could help all of us. Yes, you know, obviously aviation, it's staying up in the air, traveling you know, higher and faster, etc. But I always thought if you could harness the wind, if you could harness you know, temperature differentials, you know, if you could harness thermal currents, there's so much power in the environment around us. So I think that, that drove my interest and passion and environmental sustainability from an early day. And I, I, I love being outside, you know, mountains, physical environments, and you know, watching how precious you know, our external environments are as well, looking after things I love, things that are needed for all of us. Does that come from engineering or aviation? I don't know. I used to you know, travel over a lot of, a lot of the country, you know, flying you know, uh, South America, Europe particularly, Australia a bit. Yeah, and just experiencing the, the, the physical wonder of the planet is, uh, is, is wonderful. Madeline's ambitions of becoming a professional pilot were ended by failed eyesight tests. He ended up in property instead after studying building engineering at university. In 1987, he joined Argent, becoming chief executive a decade later. At Argent, he led regeneration projects in the Thames Valley, London, Manchester and Birmingham. In Birmingham, Argent was behind the Brindley Place scheme, a big, mixed-use development which transformed an area amid Birmingham's canal network. 
Brindley Place was the was the big one where we had 17 acres and we could build a new piece of, of city and it's been described as the largest traditionally master plan new piece of city centre in Europe since Wagner's Vienna in 1905. Now I didn't come up with that statement that was Dimitri Porphorius who was one of the uh, architects who did two buildings at uh, at Brindley Place. Yeah, the traditionally master planned, you know, new public space, restaurants under offices around public space, residential in a city centre. People weren't doing that. And I don't know whether it was just, we were just naive or you know, we certainly weren't visionary, but we'd all, you know, the few of us at Argent, we'd all been to cities around Europe and we knew what we liked. We liked nice office buildings and nice restaurants and nice public spaces. So we thought, well, why don't we put nice restaurants under our office buildings with a nice public space? It wasn't it wasn't rocket science, but no one was doing it. And you just go, well, why aren't they doing it? And we found lots of professional advisors were saying, oh, well, the reason you're not doing it is because you know, the institutions that own big office buildings, you know, they they don't want the management complications of you know, dealing with a, a different use. Go like really? It's not that complicated. They go, oh yes, but you know the restaurant could put their bins outside. You go, well, we build a bin store. Restaurant could be smelly. You go, well, we put a duct in, and then they go, oh, you know, if if it's a shop, you know, they might assign it to Ann Summers. You go, well, we'll make sure they can't assign it to Ann Summers. You know, like so there were all these fixes in people's minds that said you couldn't build an office building with a restaurant or a shop underneath it. And you you're looking at me thinking I am completely mad. You know, like. Surely we didn't build for 30 years in Britain office buildings with no restaurants or shops underneath. We did. And I can tell you in the 90s, Brindley Place was the first new build office buildings of any scale with any ground floor use that wasn't offices. And Brindley Place was the first place for a long, long time where a private sector residential developer decided to build high-density private residential. And that was Barclays. We did a joint venture with Barclays, Crosby Homes up there. Now, they're not that high density, but they went to a scary three stories high. You know, they had podium car parking level. So, and they sold like hot cakes. And Barclays went, wow, we're going to do more of this, you know, living in the cities. So the 90s saw Barclays, you know, learning how to build concrete frames. They'd never built a concrete frame. It was a laugh watching them. You know, we had to help them. You know, like, how do you do this stuff? And of course, the rest is history. But, you know, there were not. There was a thousand people living in the centre of Manchester in the late 90s, you know. Just a thousand had just moved out. You know, no one was building private apartments. So I think saying to ourselves, why not at Brindley Place and then just doing it really told us that you know, there, isn't, there isn't this kind of huge wisdom of, um, of experience out there. There's just a lot of people who, who haven't really opened their eyes and, and asked themselves, why not? Just, oh, well, you can't do that because, because of this or that or this rule or that. So when we were almost finished with Brindley Place, King's Cross came out for the second time and we'd watched it as very young people at Argent in the late 80s, you know, with just amazement, you know, when the first schemes went in with Rose or Stanhope and Foster's had a big scheme for the high-speed rail literally coming under central London and a massive station under King's Cross. That was the original arrival point of, of the high-speed rail in, into London. And the beautiful drawings, the hand drawings that you know, Rosehall Stanhope had, had commissioned showing here you know, how 120 acres at King's Cross was going to be developed, which is like in awe. You know, like, yeah. 
how could we ever be involved in anything like that? Then we got Brindley Place. But then, of course, King's Cross was coming back onto the market. And I was not, I wasn't obsessed, but I was very keen to find out how we could be the developer of King's Cross. It was in the year 2000 that Argent won the contract to lead the redevelopment of the 67 acres around King's Cross Station. The scheme had already had various stop-starts. Previous developers had gone bust and the government had changed its plans to build a new station underground at King's Cross in favour of a cheaper alternative that would see the high-speed one line connecting London to the Channel Tunnel go through Stratford in East London and then through a tunnel into a revamped St Pancras station. However, even after Argent won the contract, the development was still riddled with uncertainty. Gordon Brown, then the Chancellor, was concerned about the multi-billion pound hit to the government's finances from the redevelopment of the stations. As a consequence, Madeline and Argent were concerned that the new stations which they saw as the key to the redevelopment, would be little more than a hole in the ground. Then, in 2005, everything changed when London won the right to host the 2012 Olympics. I will say this statement, and then others can disagree or not. If we hadn't won the Olympics, King's Cross would be a hole in the ground between King's Cross and St Pancras, and King's Cross Station would still have the green crinkly tin shed out the front but everyone knew it for 30 years. I genuinely believe that because if you if you say, okay, we didn't win the Olympics, what would have been the trigger for the government to have decided to spend another three billion pounds on King's Cross Station area? I don't know because then obviously 2008 comes around the corner and then we have austerity. Yeah, and so what what would it have been that would have made the government any government spend another three because of course it gone up hugely in price because you know the high speed one was operating from 2007 Thames Link trains were running through a station that you had to fit out I think it'd be a hole in the ground and Stratford would be a desolate wasteland absolutely believe that so when you look back to 2000 how did you see the King's Cross opportunity clearly I mean I say clearly, was it obvious at the time there was an amazing opportunity there for a regeneration project, but was it also obvious that there was enormous risks in the sense that it would only work if certain things were delivered in the way that they had been promised? It was obvious it was an amazing opportunity. I cycled and walked around that whole area for for many, many months. And I knew the plans for High Speed 1 coming in and you could see the plans for what they were going to do to St Pancras all the plans for the underground were there. There were some sketch designed for King's Cross. And you thought, well, if all of that happens, it's it's as close to a no-brainer as you can get because you will have the best transport interchange in Europe, possibly you know, the Western world. You know, just obviously some extraordinary stuff in China and Hong Kong and Japan. But, and you've got 60-odd acres of developable land. It's quite... Quite tricky developable land. You know, it's got you know, gas holders in it, contamination. It's got a million square feet of listed building. But what an opportunity! At that time, you know, they hadn't even committed to do the the London section of the high speed one. But you go, well, it's still 67, 60 odd acres. We called it sixty seven because that was the planning area and a bit to the north of the railway. 
if that doesn't happen, it's still amazing land in London that's still got 600 underground lines connecting and it's still got two mainline stations. It's kind of not bad. And if you go north and get away from the detritus of the stations and the, all the dirt and the pollution and the decay, it's kind of still London and residential sort of works in London and some of those listed buildings will work for something else. And because we were appointed to vision and then get planning for, for that vision, not having to pay money up front, the only money we were spending was on ourselves and, and consultants. So yes, if the transport didn't happen, it was it was a real bummer. But you kind of thought, well, if it doesn't happen, you've still got yeah, 60 odd acres of developable land in London with six London underground lines. So what did the plan that you put together look like compared to what is the reality there today? Exactly the same. That is 2003 delivered. Yeah, I'll show you the CGIs, you know, first days of CGIs and sketches. It's exactly the same. Some of the public realm is a little bit better than I hoped. Some of the routes to the retail and some of the ways the retail works aren't quite as good as I hoped, but they, they will get there. They will get there. Some of the latter building designs, not my kind of style architecturally, but you know, they're, they're still pretty good. The Google building, I think you know, the jury's out on that in terms of what it does on the ground floor. And I think you know we need to come back in three years and go, wow, that's amazing boulevard and what they've done on the ground floor is great. I don't like... You know, the fact that the Google building is, is one big building, I don't like the, the, the meta building, you know, is one kind of big terrace of a building. I like adaptability and flexibility. We did design a building for, for Google uh, that if they didn't want all of it, you know, they could split it up. You know, I think optionality is a very good thing, you know, for you and me and for a normal business, you always think about optionality. You know, Google and meta just go, no, we're just going to be, you know, in, the, in, in this position. And, and I find that a bit uncomfortable. 10, 15 years' time, we'll work out whether Google and Meta changing, you know, have those buildings have allowed them to facilitate that change. Well, I, I don't think that they're, they're particularly normal city buildings. You know, they are big mega projects. And I think the jury might. It's a bit like some of the big towers at Canary, you know, like <clears throat> changing those, adapting those is, 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 is a real challenge. What were the key, some of the key staging posts in, in the project? Was it, was it things like attracting the first tenants? As far as we were concerned, King's Cross was a complete no-brainer, provided the transport was finished and you did half-decent public realm and half-decent office buildings. It was just they had let. Now, people couldn't see that because there were no office buildings there. 2007, Peter Freeman had genuinely arranged for £800 million of debt. We'd got £200 million of, of kind of equity, which you know, was going to be... The equity side of it, as 2007 went on, you know, 800 million went to 600, went to probably less than 600. 2008 comes, it's kind of like 400, and then suddenly debt disappears, which was great. So we end up just with the equity. And I'd bumped into, literally bumped into a guy from University of the Arts in October 2002, and he said, got anywhere for Central St. Martins? And we'd, we'd done that deal and we'd been slowly progressing the design, got through planning, kind of got the heads of terms all ready to sign. And come 2008, you know, when we obviously weren't going to be able to borrow any money and press ahead with the scheme, and we thought, 
they're not going to be able to, to do this. We'd done some enabling works for them. They bizarrely phoned up on the 28th of October 2008 and said, we've got the money, we're going. Let's just carry on. And that was extraordinary. And they got the money. They had 100-odd million of, of their own cash reserves. But they got, I think it was another 35 million debt from Lloyd's. And you tell me where Lloyd's Bank were in October 28, 2008. I don't know who he phoned. I could find out. And I don't know why that person said, yes, you can, we'll extend your, your credit. But they did. And that's why King's Cross happened. Because we were then able to deliver Central St. Martins with our equity and with their resource. We thought maybe just going to have Central St. Martins there and no Boulevard and you know, the gas work's still there and... And Central St. Martins went, well, you know, we're an art college, you know, like the students have to come over a you know, little walk bridge, you know, from York Way or whatever, you know. But um, So that was, that was quite seminal. And then the world did get better, didn't it? You know, 2012 was the first time you could borrow, borrow money. But And I think, I hope we find that in this recession, you know, people get bored not doing anything. And there's always people with money and there's always people with ideas. And, you know, when one person's loss is another person's potential gain, isn't it? So stuff happens and stuff was happening around King's Cross. So we did the deal with the student accommodation. We did the deal with the office group, you know, that just got the money from Lloyd Dorfman. We did a deal with Camden. We did a deal with BNP Paribas that loved the idea that, you know, you could get from Paris to St Pancras as opposed to Waterloo. You know, they just like, there's no one's ever going to put a French office next to Waterloo. And suddenly, you know, you've got three major French businesses at St Pancras because it's not Waterloo. And like, no one saw that coming. We should have done, but... So combination of those deals between 2008 and 2012, it kept King's Cross flowing forward and then you could borrow money and the rest is history. Looking at the scheme today, it seems clear that those principles that you put in place, bring in place, were carried through to King's Cross and how it all feels. But also, why, why do you think it worked? And why do you think it works today, not just in terms of the design, but how you actually ended up getting that despite all the challenges that you touched on? I think cities have always worked when you've got the fundamentals right. And it, it really isn't rocket science. You know, cities are about connections, connections into the city, connections through the city, connections around around your neighbourhood. Uh, one, of, one of the big challenges for all of us in, in cities is urban mobility because we've been, you know, we've grown into this, period where you know, the the private car over the last 50 60 years has suddenly become a, you know, a human right you know people have to get in a private car and we've messed up dramatically some of some of our cities that, that worked quite well Birmingham has recovered itself quite well London's still got some major issues but you know we still have far too many 10 meter bits of land going around you know pumping out poisonous fumes and politicians find it find it very difficult. But somewhere like King's Cross, where you had that public transport, and we said the most important thing about successful cities is is the connection through them by people, by humans walking, by humans cycling. Yes, taxis in the right places, buses in the right places, but not for cars. And we were able to to look at that framework of streets and squares you know, from that point of view. And if you look at all of your favourite cities, you know you'll find they have this this framework that was probably set in place hundreds of years ago that had nothing to do with cars. You know, we've kind of chucked cars into the equation, but cities that have tried to respond to the car first you know, haven't succeeded. Cities that just respond to normal human desires of wanting to get around you know, tended 
to survive and get repositioned. So that that framework of streets, squares, public spaces to then allow development to kind of almost come and go within the development blocks, whether it's an office, whether it's a hotel, whether it's you know, a, a university, whether it's residential. And the most successful cities you know, over time have allowed within that framework for, for different uses to come and go. And if you can knock, knock the building down, that's really good as well, isn't it? And some bits of London you know, have been very successful at that, you know, the Regent Street and Mayfair and stuff like that. So that's what we tried to do at Brindley Place. That's what we tried to do at King's Cross on a larger scale, and that's what we're doing at, at Canada Water. It's so King's Cross must have dominated life for more than more than about fifteen years. More than fifteen years, yeah, sixteen years. I think it dominated my life, and what a pleasure. Why? When did you decide that you wanted to do something else, and why did you decide that you wanted to take on another mega project? Well, I didn't decide to take on a, another mega project. I'd always. Right from the early days of Argent, you know, Peter Freeman, who's now chair of Homes England, and I in particular, I'm sure his brother Michael, and I'm sure, you know, as, as more colleagues joined Argent, you know, we kind of had this desire to, to build a new town. You know, everyone wants, if you're in development, everyone wants to build a new town. You know, we had Milton Keynes and you know, Stevenage, and, you know, but yeah, like they were kind of car based, weren't they? You know, let's, let's build a proper new town. Very few of us 35 years ago thought, you know, we'd get a big chunk of London like, like King's Cross. Hey, we got King's Cross and it was very rewarding and great privilege to, to think about what a new piece of central London would look like. And I thought that was it. And, you know, after 2015, 2016, you know, all, all of the streets and squares are in, you know, the, it's just wasn't a case of painting by numbers, but, you know, there's another six buildings to go. I have a view that this architect should be. Other colleagues have a view. The money behind Argent from British Telecom Pension Scheme had run out. They'd decided they weren't going to fund Argent in the way that they had you know, when I became chief exec in 1997. So Argent needed a, a new way forward and colleagues there you know, met Related. They got very excited about Related's plans and you know, looking at Euston and looking at other stuff. And I said to them, look, you know, I've been here 29 years. I don't want to get up in the morning, you know, and, and pursue that business plan, not because I don't think it's it's a good business plan, but, you know, I'll, I'll step back from the business. And I was looking at two or three other things with, with other people, which were keeping me busy five days a week. I was kind of three days a week at King's Cross. And Chris Grigg had been up to King from Chief Executive of British Land. He'd been up to King's Cross a few times. You know, I had a few cups of coffee with him. You know, Chief Executives of Property like chatting and learning from each other. We share lots of uh, similar challenges. And I think generally, you know, we... we we like each other's company. I can't think of a senior property person you know, I don't like spending time with. And Chris phoned me up. He said, fancy a cup of coffee. And I assumed it was just another, you know, let's let's chew the cut. And he said, oh, you're formally leaving Argent then at the end of the year. I said, yeah, you know, I'm still going to be involved a bit because you know, the Argent Khan stuff up there would like me to be involved. But he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm looking at a couple of other things. You know, I'm spending a couple of days a week on this and that. Uh, and I'm looking to do a, a new town. And he said, have you found one? And I said, no. I said, yeah, but I've been to you know, lots and lots of places. He said, I've got one for you. And I genuinely thought he was going to say, we've got 500 acres in Cambridge, which you know we are interested in, but that's for another podcast. He said, um, no, I've got Canada Water. And you know, I kind of like, oh, no. You know, I've got out of the underground at Canada Water. And I'm like, no, thanks, Chris. And I didn't want to say, like, no. I just said, so how much land have you got there then, Chris? And he said, oh, 46 acres. And I said, is it freehold? He said, yeah, almost. 
he was a little bit of a fibber, let's put it that way. <laughs> it is almost freehold now. And I said, what a vacant possession? He said, yeah, almost. A little bit of a fibber, but yeah, we can get that now. And I said, um, any residential on it? He said, no. Good, because, you know, moving people from their homes is a little bit tough, quite rightly. Uh, I said, what's it in the books at? And he said, 283 million. I said, 46 acres, 283 million. I said, what do you want to do with it? He said, well, we've got this master plan, you know, mixed use mixed-use scheme, but he said, you know, every time I, I probe, it kind of falls apart, doesn't doesn't feel as though, you know, it's not, it's not our game. We've got three people, you know, all with different visions. And he said, do you want to come and run it? And I said, well, very kind of you to offer. Probably not, but I'll go and have a look. And I came here with my wife in August 2015. And my wife was the first employee at Argent. We've worked together for 15 years. We got out of the underground. It was a sunny day. Within 40 minutes, she said, don't do more than five years. I said, what do you mean don't do more than five years? She said, you're going to take this job, aren't you? And I said, I said, subject to you know, quite a lot of criteria, which as it happened, we'd set out on uh, four breakfasts the month before when we were on holiday, like what we're going to do with our lives kind of stuff. You know, She had interviewed me you know, as a husband and wife she goes right so if you take another full-time job because you know bizarrely roger someone might offer you one you you're going to say no unless you know what are the criteria and so i had this list of 10 criteria so we'd walk around here and she you know our jaws dropped you know you've walked around here it's just like oh my god we're in a woods oh my god we're in a dock oh my god we're in a park oh we've got 43 acres we've now got 46 acres now got 53 acres just like this is unbelievable and i went back to chris having you know, gone on the overground and cycled here and gone on the Jubilee line and walked to Tabridge and cycled to... I thought, this is, this is just like a brilliantly located place. So I said to Chris, you know, got 10 questions to ask. He asked him the 10 questions, you know, tick, tick, tick. He goes, well, well, and he could see me ticking. What, so, what, 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 can you say what some of the questions and criteria were? Yeah, I wanted something to be significant and meaningful, but, you know, generally in accordance with a planning policy because I don't want to go through a massive planning process something that you know environmentally felt right you know like the world was you know, now worse than it was but you know you wanted to do something that that was kind of significant in a in a very positive positive way so I arrived on the 1st of February on the 2nd of February I presented to the board and the non-execs at um, Rocket Hall and I'd spent two months from saying yes with Chris in the summer of 2015 I'd spent two months waking up in the morning thinking, what the hell am I going to do at Canada Water? You're like, how did how did King's Cross happen? You know, was I actually any good at you know, my job at King's Cross? You know, how much how much of that visioning was really me? And, you know, how did it happen? I'd go back to sleep. I wasn't worried, but I kind of, Ooh. And then early December 2015, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning. Bang! And I'd got this plan in my mind. I went into the study and I wrote on 12 flip chart sheets, Exactly what we're going to do at Canada Water, and my just wrote with a pencil pen, just wrote, big wrote. felt pen, big felt pen. And my wife came in at six, and she said, "You're right." I said, "Yeah." I said, "I've, I've, I've cracked it, you know. I've cracked Canada Water. What it's all going to be?" I went back to bed, and you know, I had put all those flip charts up at at um, Rocket Hall, and I said, "This is what we're going to do at Canada Water." And I went, "Yeah, get on with it." And so I just thought that's that's perfect way to join a company, isn't it? When you've got the whole board day two. You either like this and back me or you don't like it and I walk out and they backed it. And, you know, they're just, I cannot believe 
how supportive British land have been, you know, and how you know, this team here is probably a third new people, a third King's Cross people, a third British land people. But within British land, you know, because we obviously rely on the, you know, the finance teams and the communication teams, and just every everyone has been just like, how can we help? And it, it's, you know, for an old bloke like me, it's, it is lovely walking into an environment where everyone seems pleased to see you and says, how can we help? I thought Argent was a really good business. And I was just like, it's kind of pissed me off that British land, kind of like, there's obviously loads of really good businesses, aren't there? And I think it's quite nice, 29 years at one company where you thought you'd formed a brilliant team and everything was as good as it possibly could be. You, you'd kind of seen some other companies say, oh, yeah, I wouldn't like to work there. We hear nasty stories. But to come into somewhere like British Land, you think, damn, like, they're doing almost everything better than we used to. The Canada Water Scheme covers 53 acres and involves developing 3,000 new homes, 2 million square feet of new workspace, a new high street, and a repurposing of an old Daily Mail print works. Planning permission for the master plan was granted in 2020 and construction is estimated to take around 10 years. So as Madeline pushes on with transforming another area, how is he ensuring that he makes the right decisions? I think getting the fundamentals right, you know, the, the streets and the squares and, and the infrastructure. If you get you know, one of the development plots wrong, it's a development plot. It's, you know, there are thousands and thousands of development plots you know, in London. Before we press the button, you know, we do have a sanity check. It's, it's of course you have the f- formal processes in in British land, and you know, now we've got a partner here, Australian Super Pension Fund. You know, again, the right kind of money. You know, hey, they own seventy percent of Kings Cross. They bought into Kings Cross in twenty fourteen, so so they know about long term development commitments and flexibility. Um, it would be nice if every building you built. If you built an office, it could suddenly become residential. If you built residential, it could suddenly become an office or it could be a university, it could be a hotel. The reality is that can't happen because every building has a slightly different typology. And, and if you did something that could become anything, you, you'd spend a lot of money and waste a lot of uh, energy you know, doing it. So I think it's just being aware of the building might need to adapt at some point and not necessarily saying here's a scheme, you know, this is exactly what you do, but just thinking you're building something that has a robustness in it. Can't you can't always do that because of the of the constraints. Yeah, you know, I'm not saying that you know the office buildings we're building here. We did a little feasibility for, for this office building here. I just said, so if it becomes residential in twenty years' time, what's it look like? And it's kind of all right. The one next door, I don't know. Yeah, you know, we we didn't do a scheme of that because that's just an amazing workplace building. And you think a workplace building's you know still going to be around in twenty years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty? And you think, yeah, actually, the idea of people coming together is going to carry on. But we go through those scenarios. This is going back to your point about Google and, and Facebook as well, sort of building in a degree of flexibility and adaptability into what you're doing. Yeah, it sounds very um, arrogant to me to say I don't think you know, they thought about that, but you know maybe they just are so optimistic and so aware of what their requirements are going to be it's fine you know they're they're, they're building amazing space maybe the people working there will will carry on working there and, and will be amazingly productive you know I, we couldn't do it as a as a commercial developer you know because we do ask those what ifs you know what happens if it doesn't quite go as well and i'm sure google and 
you know, Meta do that as well, but you kind of think they don't do it as much as us. How much how much vision does it take to deliver schemes like this? I mean, you, you touched on this when you when you were saying you were a bit like worried about King's Cross. I mean, are you a visionary? I mean, someone who gets up in the morning at three a.m. and writes down the entire scheme for Canada Water, but is now the reality sounds like visionary to me. Well, I don't. I think it's a bit knobbish and visionary. I, yeah, I do. I wake up in the morning sometimes with ideas in the middle of the night. Sometimes with ideas. I rarely wander into the study at three o'clock in the morning i have done it yeah a couple of times in the last year i think because i think if i go back to sleep now i'll bloody forget it in the morning that's kind of more getting old than being a visionary uh i i do sketches very badly but just enough to communicate to someone that can do better sketches or can tell me that's a really stupid idea and there's three or four sketches i've done here that i think we're going to build i don't know whether that's visionary or not i just think the probably pushing the boundaries a bit. I've got lots of colleagues that put lots of my ideas straight into the bin, which is where they should be. But um, uh, it's just a great privilege. You know, I, I'm, I'm just pinching ideas from from wandering around. You know, I'm lucky I travel and you go to cities and towns and you, know, you walk up mountains and you look at things and you, you look at the way light works sometimes and water works and you go like, hey, we can we can do some of that here. I, I, don't, I, I just think I'm very lucky to have such a big opportunity um, I don't think it's unique I just think if someone else had the opportunity they'd do what I have the privilege of being able to do single aspiration behind King's Cross was to make it a great place for families with young kids to go and journey and go back and stay and journey and spread the message and so the spaces between the buildings and the routes through the development needed to be exemplary well planted Loads of seats, you know, fountains, places for kids to stand up. No signs that say don't climb on this or don't squirt water at them. And toilets, obviously. And surprise, surprise, you know, families with young kids, what they want is the same as what elderly people want. And surprise, surprise, everyone in between quite likes it as well. So that was the single aspiration of King's Cross. And the fact that my wife and I had recently had a son and we were travelling around trying to find places like we wanted King's Cross to be was the driving force behind the vision of King's Cross. So I come here, the driving force here is can we make our spaces a little bit more human, a little bit more generous, a little bit more planted, you know, more seating, more toilets, you know, more space to breathe and enjoy, better connected into 120 acres of green and blue because people love going to places where they feel safe and uplifted and can breathe and see other people and journey and just look at London at weekends but it's not just weekends you know if you can create routes that are pleasant uplifting and there are things along the way that they can do people will come and people want to stay and they want to come back and so the vision behind Canada Water is to make the spaces even more generous and even more greener and better connected into a wider area than King's Cross, because we can. Is it really important to have that central purpose? Do, look, if you look at King's Cross, did, like, did everything hang off that yeah. purpose? Yeah, and more, more people go to King's Cross at the moment at weekends than they do during the week. Now, you could say, well, you know, when Google Building's finished and you know, Meta have fitted out their buildings, that will change. But it is, it is interesting that people... Millions of people get up at weekends, you know, and and during the week, it's just extraordinary how many people during the week are out and about. You go like, well, shouldn't you be at work? Or 
and you see these kids sometimes as well. You think, well, shouldn't you be at school? And then you hear that you know they're speaking Dutch or something like that. You go, well, that's fair. Sometimes they're speaking English. And, oh well, maybe they should be at school. But people love going to places that they can just be in and and, and enjoy. You know, we, you know, Lizzie has heard me say this before. You know, you're going to be able to walk up a landscape route and sit on you know, the roof of one of our buildings and watch the sunset behind Tower Bridge and. You know, if you're holding hands in the landscape, watching the sunset behind Tower Bridge, and you don't think that's romantic, you know, you've got big problems. Were the fountains at King's Cross always part of the plan? Yeah, I wanted the biggest fountain in the world. And we had the best fountain designer in the world because he had done Brindley Place. We learned a lot from Brindley Place, i.e. that if you do a fountain, kids are going to go in it and they're going to swallow the water, which they couldn't do at Brindley Place. So at King's Cross, the brief was, we want the biggest fountain in the world, but we want to be able to turn it off for events. And the water's got to be drinkable. So King's Cross Fountain, there it is, 1,080 water jets designed by Fountain Workshop. David Bracey, the best fountain designer in the world. And every one of those jets can be controlled individually by him on his PC. And every one of them can be coloured individually by him on his PC. And he can really have fun watching the cameras and watching you cross it and squirting you as you go past, sat on the other side of the world. It brings me on quite nice to, to the last question, which was about sort of regeneration in the UK more broadly. Clearly projects like this, it's going to be two more across the country if we're going to deliver on the pledge to level up the economy. What is needed to make those and this sort of project easier and what does it take to see them through? You need um, land and a, and a, and a bought-in vision. So um, Birmingham is, is worth looking at from the late 80s when when it was a car-bound, car-constrained city. You know, they built the, the inner ring road, the outer ring road in, in the 60s. You know, I loved it at university up there because it, it was like dystopia. It was kind of like, you know, bomb damage in some bits. Yeah, cars travelling all over the place. But, yeah, it was pretty harsh and, and businesses were constrained and no one was going in, in the city centre and, and they all got together. And when I say all, you know, this was politicians from every party and some amenity groups and some urban designers. And they got some people from uh, from continental Europe and they came up with a plan for the city. And it was called the Highbury Initiative. And I still think it's the best kind of city plan that you know, any city in, in the UK has produced. Manchester did something similar you know, after, after the IRA bomb, obviously the London plan. You know, was a very good attempt and I think you know, it is terrific but there's 32 boroughs in London and they all have their own politics and their own desires it's it's a very complicated place London what what needs to happen is you know the Southwark are going to hate me saying this Camden will hate me saying this but you know you need more mayoral power you know the mayor will love me saying this but you know if you came in from somewhere outside of the UK and you and you got rid of the kind of political reality that we all have to deal with. And you know, I'm sure we carry on dealing with 32 London boroughs and all of the finesse and complexities that, that go with that. You you would say, why are there 32? You know, uh, why isn't there one organisation that's that's really got you know, an overview of this city? It is, it is one city. It would work better as one city. It's got an overview in some areas, isn't it, of policing. And you go, oh, well, it's rubbish at policing. <laughs> you know, it's got overview in transport. I think, you know, once we had a mayor, and you know, whether it was Ken Livingston entirely or just the fact we got a mayor, you know, the transport in London you know, was transformed as a result of bringing it together. And Birmingham's and the Manchester's, you know, kind of have that advantage 
than London. You know that that one mayoral authority with with real power to to vision uh, and to invest and to plan and, and think holistically would really help. And obviously, land is the raw material. Land at the right price is the raw material. Infrastructure is a massive issue. Do you think there are my sort of previous question was kind of pretty nosy with the presumption that there are other regeneration opportunities? Oh, I mean, you looked obviously before you decided to go ahead with this, are there other regeneration opportunities in the UK or is it a unique set of factors that come together to provide somewhere like this? Massive regeneration opportunities. You know, Bristol Temple Meads has been sat waiting for a, you know, a great plan for 30 years. You know, I, I was down there 20, 25, 30, 30 years ago. I know it's now moving forward. Great. That's taken 30 years. There's been a few little things. You know, York's had a amazing site for 20 25 years that's slowly moving forward you know manchester's got other opportunities birmingham's got huge opportunities around high speed too you know nottingham you know, every, every city that i know from sheffield you know to the ones i've just been to you know i've been in sheffield recently great opportunities i've been in um, nottingham great opportunities but these cities need to be able to expand their economy and you know they would say you know they need the connectivity is back to you know connectivity is very important if you look at the uk in relation to other neighbors our cities other than london are much too small and birmingham manchester in my view need to be five times as big and you know, where's the plan to make birmingham and manchester five times as big where's the investment you know to to link the birmingham's and the manchester's with you know, the leaders and the sheffields and stuff like that and argent was the biggest developer in birmingham for 10, 15 years, you know, uh, still, you know, the scheme that we set up there, Paradise, is, is, is still happening with MEPC. We were very keen on looking at the market site around High Speed 2. And I know, you know, Albert Bohr, the former leader of Birmingham, and obviously Richard Lees and Howard Bernstein, you know, I used to spend a lot of time with them. It was a great privilege, you know, and they would just, just give us the power, you know, just, you know, give us the money to, to get this transport in because these cities have got the the fundamental raw materials, you know, a lot of students, you know, a lot of international connectivity. Manchester could become three three times bigger like that. So could Birmingham. And I think the government you know, needs to concentrate, you know, where it can get the benefits. But obviously, whether that means missing out some of the smaller cities, I don't know. Um, you know it is quite complicated when you've only got so much money and they obviously try and spread it around to, to piss off everyone to an equal extent. But no one so much that you know they go completely ballistic you know it's it's tough isn't it but yeah we haven't got a great national plan we haven't had for you know decades you've been listening to business studies with me graham ruddick our producer is anushka tate if you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode then please sign up for our sister publication on substack off to lunch where as well as bonus content, you can get business news and analysis throughout the week. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.